All right, if you would, take your Bible. Take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 15. If you received one of the bulletins as you came in this morning and you turn it over on the back, uh, there's obviously a lot of information within the bulletin about things that are going on and we want you to be able to look at that. On the back, if you brought your magnifying glass, there are some sermon notes there that you can use to follow along. Yes, it's 1045. Yes, this is a sermon. No, we won't be finished at 10.15. So uh, we're mixing things up a little bit this morning because one of the things we're talking about is how worship, all aspects of worship, worship not just being the music, worship not just being confined to what we do at 10.30 on Sunday mornings, worship is our response to God. And so what we're going to do as a church family this morning is look at God's word, think about that idea of what it means to respond up to God and worship. And then at the end, we want to be able to do that together through the taking of the Lord's Supper. So we're gonna do that immediately after the sermon. And then following the Lord's Supper, we're going to sing together in response to God's word two songs. We sing some older songs here at the beginning. We're gonna look at God's word, celebrate the Lord's Supper, and then sing a couple of newer songs at the end. So I understand some of you have to get out for jobs. There's health reasons, but at the end, if you could just stay with us to the very end because all of this is a part of our response to who God is and how he works in, in our lives. When we first came to Emmaus about 15 months ago, I almost had my suitcase unpacked when people started coming up and asking me, hey, when are we going to solidify long-term musical leadership at Emmaus? Well, the search committee was very upfront and they had done a good job letting me know that Emmaus had been without a full-time music leader for about three and a half years, even at that point. But it still caught me off guard early on. And there's nothing that will make a pastor's stomach hurt and make them lose sleep at night, like thinking about music style and music leadership and what that looks like in a church family. And so this was happening just within the first couple of days that I'd been here at Emmaus. I determined a couple of things really quickly that helped me over the next year. The first was that what David was providing for us was not so-called interim leadership, that his emotional, spiritual maturity, not to mention musical ability, not to mention time invested, was putting us in a place where we were engaging in worship and God was doing good things. And the fact that I can even stand on stage and talk openly with the church family about these things speaks so much to what David has done and continues to do. And so that was a huge help. That's right, yeah, absolutely. And the last thing David would ever want is that we clap for him for that reason. But uh, I, I know you just want to honor him with that. So that was number one, is we were in that position. Number two was I knew we couldn't make any major long-term decisions about music style, music leadership, any of those things until we had established a biblical theological basis for what it means to sing and what it means to worship and what it means to be a church because the Lord knows we can't make decisions about music and church based on what's popular, based on what's gonna draw the most people, based on what's gonna make the most people happy, That can't be the foundation for who we are and what we do. There has to be a deeper foundation. It has to be set on God's word 
and on what we find throughout Scripture and on the theology of Jesus Christ. And so this is the attempt to begin moving that direction. So for the last three weeks, you can see on your notes there on the back of the bulletin, for the last three weeks, we've been talking about those foundations for musical worship. We're not driven by envy. We're not gonna be driven by being envious of what another church is doing or what everybody else thinks is popular. It has to have God's word and God's spirit, not either or, it's gotta be both. And it has to be based on the new covenant. We live under the new covenant that Jesus Christ has provided according to God's plan. And so those were the last three weeks. This week, following forward, we want to think about how worship drives us up toward God. It focuses us on the things of God. It's not man-centered. It's God-centered. Then how it transforms our life inwardly, and then how it takes us out. So I know you make fun of me and you get tired of up, in, and out, but it just comes back around over and over and over again because it's kind of that core of of what we do. And so we're gonna talk about how musical worship drives us in, in those three ways, which takes us to Exodus 15 this morning as we think about responding up to God with musical worship. Exodus 15 happens immediately after the people have been brought through the Red Sea. So God has saved them out of Egypt. He's brought them out of Egypt through the parting of the waters. They've come onto the other side, and here's what happens. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Verse nine, the enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse 
and its rider he is hurled into the sea. May God bless the reading of his word. So you see this story happening. Kids, as you're thinking about this passage in your Bible, remember this is the story of how God has brought the people through the Red Sea. He's rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, and the people respond with this song. Now last week we talked about how worship, gathering together for corporate worship in this way, singing songs, praying, studying the word, that that's not all worship is about, that we worship God throughout the week. It happens anytime, any place, and with all kinds of different actions, not just what happens at 1030. But there's a couple of questions that come out of that. The first question is, if worship is always and everywhere, why do we gather regularly as a church? So this is the idea that if I can worship God on my boat, or if I can worship God on the golf course, or if I can worship God in my recliner, or if I can worship God with my friends, what in the world are we doing in here? Well, let me assure you, if I felt like I could fully worship God on the golf course, I would be there, not here. Even in the cold fog, I would still be there, not here. If, if somehow we thought that that was all that worship was about and that this was unnecessary, well then we could do that. But we know that we need these times of gathered worship. We see throughout scriptures examples of that. We see commands of that. What are some reasons why we gather together? If worship is anytime, anywhere, why do we still gather together? Well, the first is God has created and rescued a people, not just individuals. When God does his work, he does it with individuals, but always with the purpose of bringing them together, that they would live their lives together. Even a person like me uh, who is introverted and gets their energy and life from having some time by themselves, for all of us, we desperately need one another. And let me tell you where I see this most clearly. I've had several conversations recently with people who haven't been able to attend church regularly because they're caring for family members who are sick, so they're the primary caregiver, they're not able to come. I've had several conversations like this, and time after time, they just break down in tears because of how much they miss being together with the church. How, it's one of those things you don't really realize how important it is until you don't have it. If because of your job or because of family situations, you've been in a situation that you haven't been able to gather regularly with the church, you know that there comes this time you realize, I'm missing something. I need this. I can't quite put my finger on it, but I know I need to be with other believers. Don't take for granted what it is that God has called us to do in gathering together with one another. That takes us to number two, which is practically the same as number one, but just remembering Jesus died for the church. We teach kids to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. It's not a bad song. Uh, there, there's a place for that, but, but Jesus loves us. He, he loves the church. He loves all that he does through God's people as we're gathered together. And if I think that everything that's wrapped up with being a Christian is what I can do on my own, I've completely misunderstood Christianity at that point. Christianity, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is not defined by what I do on my own. It's defined on how I live as part of the body of Christ. And gathering together with other believers is part of God's plan for how we live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Number three, we are prone to forget and wonder. 
The reason that we need to gather together regularly is we're prone to forget. If you still have your phone open or your Bible open to Exodus 15, look what happens immediately after they've seen this psalm. So they've been rescued, they've been saved, they have this awesome church service. Then in verse 22, Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? So here's the pattern that God's people would face throughout uh, the Bible. He saves them, they celebrate, they grumble. (laughs) He saves them, they celebrate, they grumble. We are all prone to grumble. We're all prone to wander away in different directions. We're prone to forget the goodness of God. We're prone to forget the gospel. And part of what meeting together regularly with the church does for us is it helps those who are forgetful to remember. It helps those who wonder to come back and remember this is who God is. This is how he works in our lives. So that's one of the reasons. Fourth, scripture commands and models that we gather together. If you just need a very basic, straightforward reason of why we do it, it's because Scripture commands it, and we'll look at that more in coming weeks. So that's the first question. If I can worship anywhere, anytime, why do we still gather together as the church? Well, there's some of the reasons. Secondly, if worship includes all of our actions, why do we highlight music and singing? Where does this idea come that music and singing is some special form of, of worship? Well, we know that worship encompasses all of our lives, but there is something about singing, something about music that's really important. Um, Number one, musical worship engages our emotions and our heart. There is something that happens when we sing, something that happens when music is involved that can't happen any other time. It engages us. Kids, families, maybe senior adults, how many of you saw the Trolls movie that came out recently? Anybody see? Anybody see? Anybody admit to seeing the Trolls movie? Okay, so uh, that pretty pretty much tells you where I am in in life with uh, the age of kids. But this these these troll creatures uh, with the crazy hair and all the the super magical powers they love to sing and dance and hug. Um, I know this is going to come as a huge surprise to you, but, but I don't do a lot of dancing. Um, it's just not, not a big part of my life. I don't go around singing uh, very often, and I'm very selective about who I hug. So uh, that is just not, not my style. But every time I hear that, I got the feeling song that they play. You know, I got this feeling inside my bones. It makes me go electric wavy. When I lose control, yeah? Anybody with me on that? When we have dance parties in our house, even me, who wants nothing to do with dancing, nothing to do with singing, I'm still engaged. It does, music does something to you that doesn't happen any other way. And so God has given us the gift of music to engage our emotions. Some of us are pretty stoic people to begin with, We need something to draw us out of that. We need something to engage our heart in a new way, and God has given us music to do that. The second thing is musical worship engages our memory. Musical worship engages our mind. 
Have you ever gotten a song stuck in your head? Well, of course you have. We are, you, right now, you may have a song stuck in your head because of what I just said a second ago. But uh, you get these songs stuck in your head and they just go over and over and over again. Throughout church history, especially when you were in situations that people didn't read very much or didn't read well, the way they taught doctrine, the way they taught theology, the way they taught the Bible, the way most of us learned scripture was how? It was through music. It was through little psalms that you learned in vacation Bible school or you learned in Sunday school. We remember what we've seen. I'm amazed at what my kids are able to remember when they put a psalm to it versus if you just had just memorize it straightforward. Worship, musical worship is designed to engage our minds, to engage our memory. It's one of those gifts that God has given us. Number three, musical worship engages our bodies. It, it, it allows us to participate. Now, I'm not talking necessarily about dancing here, though that is one way that you do that. What I'm talking about here is when we gather together and we've seen, it's a way that we choose to participate in worship as opposed to just watching a performance. And this is something we have to guard against so much in contemporary church life. When you gather together with the church family, it is not a performance to be watched. And I know that even the setup of this building can make that, make that difficult. Those of you that sit in the stadium seating, you fight the temptation every week that you sit in seats that were designed for you to be able to see the stage, to be able to watch. And yet worship is not watching. Worship is participating. Worship is engaging. And one of the ways we do that is through music. Even if you don't sing well, even if you don't particularly like to sing, even if that's not your theme, when we stand and we sing together, it is a way that we participate together. We say we're in this together. We need one another. And so I know in a room like this it can make that difficult, but just know that one of the reasons we have musical worship is because it engages us. It allows us to participate. And then number four, and the key for this morning, is that musical worship is a key way that God's people respond up to him. And we're going to see this in Exodus 15. Uh, Chris Tomlin, in his book called The Air I Breathe, which is about worship, I've kind of cut down his definition to make it shorter. But essentially, he says, worship is our response to who God is and what he has done. We live in response to God. Key word, response. So I'm worshiping not to gain favor with God, not to make God love me, not to make God accept me. The reason I engage in worship, the reason you gather together, the reason you sing is because you're responding to what God has done already in your life, what you sense him, what you see him doing in your life. So it's a response to that. That takes us back to Exodus 15. Exodus 15 begins there in verse 1. As we think about this response, it says in verse 1, it says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. Now we've already talked about how the word then points back to chapter 14 where God has rescued them out of Egypt. He's brought them out. God acts, we respond. That's how worship works. God acts, we respond. This is how some of you live your lives. You're going through the day and you just randomly break into song. I know some of you do this because I'm married to a lady. 
who, who does this. Life will be happening during the day, and then out of nowhere, something triggers a song, and she breaks into song. I don't understand that. I don't live in that world, but I watch it on display, and so I know that it, that it happens, that God has created us in such a way that life happens, and we respond to him, and one of the most common ways to respond is with music or poetry or art or some form of creativity where you're expressing yourself to the Lord. That's what you see throughout Scripture. Hannah does it. Zechariah does it. Mary does it. You see these songs that happen. The book of Psalms is just one long example of God acts. We respond. So there's this word then that starts us out here. And it says Moses and the Israelites. Moses is the, is, is the leader the Israelites are the participants. Notice that it's not just Moses who does the singing here. It's everybody. We're all participating in this. Moses and the Israelites. Moses and the Israelites sing this song to the Lord. When we worship, we're responding to the Lord. Worship is always God-centered, not man-centered. If we ever make music about us, if we ever make worship primarily about us, we miss the point of what it means to worship. Worship is we're responding to what God has done, to who he is, and we're responding to him. We're giving our focus to him. We're, we're looking up. We're putting our focus where it wouldn't be otherwise. Which takes us to this idea that on your notes, there are three things that we respond to when we worship God. We respond first in response to God's creation. People worship, we worship, we use musical worship to respond to God's work in creation. If you look there in verse two, it says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my Father's God and I will exalt him. That phrase, my Father's God, there is really important because what it triggers for us is that this song in Exodus 15 is designed to connect back to the early parts of Genesis. When you see my Father's God, it takes you back to the story of Abraham and all of the people that would follow after Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons and many... See, I told you music works when you're, when you're trying to remember things. So... This takes you back to, back to Abraham. He's tying us into all this song is going to have something to do with God's work in Genesis. So you see that in verse two. You skip down to verse uh, five. Down in verse five, it says, the deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. That word, deep waters, some translations will put flood there. That term is only found a couple of times in the Old Testament. And when it shows up in Genesis, two of the most prominent times that it shows up in Genesis is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when it's talking about God's spirit hovering over the waters, over the deep. It's that same word that's used there. And you could probably guess the other time that it's used in Genesis. It's used in reference to Noah's flood, the flood there, the waters covering the earth. So what's happening is with this song in Exodus chapter 15, we're tying back again to the story of Genesis and specifically to God's work through creation, that in what God has created, he drives his people to worship him. And this isn't strange to us because those of you who have been out in nature a lot, 
You love to be outside. If it was up to you, we'd be worshiping outside even though it's cold and wet right now. You're just, you love nature, you love to do those things. When you are under the stars, or when you're standing in front of the Grand Canyon, or when you're out in the wilderness, oftentimes in those moments, we're not thinking about how great we are. If you are, you might wanna to talk to somebody about that. But, but normally when you're in nature, you're not thinking, wow, I'm really great. You're thinking, wow, I feel pretty small right now, and there's a great God who has done this. I know the one who has made these things. I know the one who has designed this. And you give worship to him. You express yourself to him because of what you experience in God's creation. Now, if you're feeling argumentative at the moment, here's the argument that happens. Okay, Owen. So we worship best in response to nature, to creation, to what God has given us. So why can't I just worship God in the forest? Why do I still have to come here and do that in a building like this? Well, remember this. When God reveals himself to us, he does it in two primary ways. He does it in a general way through creation, and he does it in what theologians often call a specific or special way through his word, through Jesus Christ, his son. And so as we experience God's goodness in nature, in creation, we respond to him in worship, to the way he's made himself known to us. But if we only do that, we've missed out on the specific way that God reveals himself to us in his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we gather together in a church service like this, gathered around the word of God, gathered around the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're providing balance needed balance. If I only worship God in here and I go out and forget about him, that's not true worship. If I can only worship God in nature but I really don't need to gather around his word or around his son, that's not true worship either. God has revealed himself to us in such a way that we're worshiping him, we're responding to him in creation, but we're also responding to him through his word as he makes himself known. And that leads us to number two, so we not only respond to God's creation, but we respond to God's character, the way that God has made himself known to us. We see God's character in verse six. If you look at that very next verse there in Exodus 15, it says, your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. Then skip down to verse 11. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. When we sing to God, when we gather for worship, we're not responding. This is so important, especially in 21st century American church life. We're not responding to a generic idea of who a God might be. We are responding specifically to the God who has revealed himself to us, who has made himself known to us through creation and through his word. And so if we're not careful, worship, for lack of a better word, becomes so mushy, so vague, so general, that it's not really biblical worship. Because when we worship the Lord, we're responding to how he has made himself known to us in his word, which means Theology, knowing who God is, how he works, why it matters, theology should always lead to worship. If my head is full of a lot of information about God, but my heart is cold to him, 
That's not theology, that's idolatry. I'm being an idol to that knowledge that I want to have about God as if that knowledge is meant for me to hold on to to make me smarter. If I learn anything about God, if I grow in my understanding of him, the only response that matters to that point is worship. That I turn around and say, God, you are great. You are the one who is holy. You are the one who is powerful. You are the one who is good. You are the one who is loving. I am responding to your character. So we respond to God in creation. We respond to God's character. And then the core of this chapter is number three on your notes. We respond to God's salvation. Saved people seen. Saved people seen. Tell yourself over and over again, saved people seen. When we are saved, when we experience God's rescue in our life, even if you can't carry a tune in the bucket like me, even if music's not your thing like me, you just can't help but respond in song because of who God is and what he's done to save you, what that salvation is like in your life. Look back really quickly in verse two. Back in verse two, we read this a second ago, but it says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The people here did not save themselves. They didn't get themselves out of Egypt. God got them out of Egypt. We don't save ourselves either. We don't rescue ourselves. We don't take care of our sin. We don't take care of our slavery. We don't take care of our death. When we worship God for his salvation, we're worshiping him because we participate in the salvation that he has provided. Were it not for him, we would have no rescue. We would have no life. We would have no hope. He's the one who's provided that. Look down in verse nine and 10. Down in verse nine, the people are singing here about how the enemy boasted against them. I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. There is an enemy that is set against God's people at this point. And then what happens in verse 10? You just blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. When we talk about God's salvation, and you read Exodus 15, you're not reading about a God who is out of control with anger. You're reading about a just God who always defeats sin, who always defeats death, who always comes to the rescue of his oppressed people when they call out to him. And so what we find in here is what you see in the New Testament in John 10, 10, that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full. Saved people who realize that God has done something for them that they could never do for themselves, the only response is to turn your eyes to God and say, thank you. Were it not for you, I would still be in my sin. Were it not for you, I would still be dead. Were it not for you, I would still be in slavery. You have made a way. Then you get down a little bit further to verse 13. What's the purpose of this salvation? Verse 13, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. This is a beautiful verse. Don't, don't miss how important verse 13 is. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. God doesn't rescue his people and just say, hey, do whatever you want to. He takes his people he has redeemed and says, I'm gonna lead you. Where's he gonna lead you? In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Now, 
lots of debate surrounding what is meant by holy dwelling. It's probably one of those concepts in the Bible that's purposefully progressive. Say that a couple of times fast, but I should have practiced that phrase before. Uh, It's purposefully progressive. This is the idea in the Old Testament, especially, that you'll get concepts that are meant to be played out over time. So when it says holy dwelling here in verse 13, it's referring to Mount Sinai, followed by the promised land, followed by the temple, followed by the whole world. As we see how God is going to lead his people progressively place to place to show them what it's like to experience his presence, and then under the new covenant we find Jesus sending out his people, and he says, go and make disciples of all nations. God is at work in all places at all times, and I'm sending you out to live in his presence. And so there's kind of this progressive idea that's built in here. But then skip down to verse 18. I want us to really address 18, and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up with this section right here. 17, well, let's start in 17, actually. 17 and 18. So you will bring them in. This is carrying on that promise from earlier. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. What you start to see at this point in the psalm is something that's been purposeful from the very beginning. The way this chapter works is the people look back to the past, then they deal with the present, and then they look to the future. And this is the way that we still respond to God's salvation. You look back to the past and you say, God, you saved me then. Maybe it was when I was a 10-year-old kid at Vacation Bible School. Maybe it when I was a 50-year-old person and my life was falling apart. But God, I can look to the past and I can see where you saved me. You continue to be good today and I can see your plan unfolding. You carry me through stuff I can never make it through on my own. And you will lead me into the future. You've been faithful in the past, you're faithful today, you will continue to be faithful and save your people in the future. The reason this is so helpful with music is because it gets us past that ridiculous question about whether we should sing old stuff or new stuff. God worked in the past, he saved in the past, his glory was present in the past, so we've seen some older stuff that talks about that, what that was all about. We look back purposely holding on to what happened in the past. God's still at work today. If we're resistant to new songs, there has to be a little heart check that goes on inside, and that heart check is saying, God, do I still believe you're at work today? Because if we still believe God's at work today, people are gonna continue to respond with new, fresh songs that God brings up within them that matches God's word and God's spirit at work, and so we've seen the old songs because God saved in the past. We've seen new songs because God continues to save people. He continues to be at work. He continues to transform his people. He continues to transform his churches. But don't miss this. We've seen with an eye to the future because we know that God is faithful. And this brings me to a point that I deal with personally and I've dealt with in churches over and over again. I just want you to hear me on this. Sometimes if we're not careful, when we're going through difficult times in life, and students, especially as you get ready to go off to college, pay really close attention to this, because I deal with this with college students probably more than anything else. Life's hard. I'm dealing with temptations. I'm dealing with struggles. I've got a lot on my plate now 
I just can't, I just can't come to corporate worship. I either feel too guilty, or I feel too tired, or I have too many things going on, and so corporate worship gets pushed to the side. And so you know what you do? You still feel tired. You still feel tempted. You still feel overwhelmed, except now you've cut yourself off from the source of God's work and grace in your life when you gather with other people who are also going through difficult times, who are also going through hard circumstances, who are also facing difficult temptations, who are also living with pain and shame and hurt. Corporate worship is a gift from God to help us to work through some of those hardest times in life. We don't tell people, hey, leave your circumstances at the door and then come in here. That's not what we're saying. We're saying come in here with all those circumstances, but they don't have to define you. I know you're in pain right now. I know your family's hurting. I know your marriage is in trouble. I know you feel like you're not worthy of God. This is where you need to be, though. Because of all those other circumstances, because of everything else going along, going around you, corporate worship raises us up. It focuses our eyes up on God, and it takes our eyes off of all those things that are overwhelming us. Just don't take yourself away from the one gift that God has given us on a regular basis we gather together. We need one another. You're not the only person going through hard times. You're not the only person struggling right now. Corporate worship is a gift from God to address those things. So what we find in Exodus 15 is that worship is our response to who God is and what he's done. Saved people seen. Saved people can't help but respond to God. And so what we're gonna do over the next several minutes is we're gonna respond to God in two ways that he's given us explicitly in his scripture. The first is the taking of the Lord's Supper. After I pray, those of you who are in the choir, you're gonna come on stage to get in place in the choir so that you can lead us in the next section as we sing together as God's people. While the choir's coming up to their spots, I know several of you are helping with the Lord's Supper, you'll be able to move in those spots We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we'll follow that by singing a couple of new songs together as God's people. I pray that during this time that your heart would be engaged, your mind would be engaged. I know it's hard with little kids in here, but they need to see this more than anything. They need to see what it looks like for God's people to respond to him. So we're going to do that right now together. Let me pray. After I pray, choir, and those who are helping with the Lord's Supper, you can move to those locations. Father, our lives during the week move really quickly. Uh, we have a lot of things going on. There are people who are hurting a lot right now, physically hurting, emotionally hurting, uh, maybe feeling really broken spiritually. Father, I pray that during the next few minutes as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, remembering what Christ has done for us, and as we sing together, God, that this would be a time of healing God, that you would use this time to remind people of your goodness and your love and your salvation. And Father, that through all that happens over the next few minutes, that our eyes would be focused on you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.